Hi and welcome to the Jewelry Podcast, a podcast where we talk about fine jewelry and gemstones in a simple way and break away from the norms that have tainted an industry previously weighed down by tradition. My name is Cecilia and seven years ago I founded a jewelry brand in a hotel room in India a brand called Mumbai Stockholm. Today, we create and design all of our jewelry from scratch in five different goldsmith studios around Sweden. And that little company I started with 200 euros in my hotel room has grown to become one of the largest Swedish brands in fine jewelry. And fine jewelry is jewelry made from precious metals and gemstones And it is my passion to spread knowledge about it and guide people through this sparkling jungle, helping them create their personal fine jewelry collection. And there is one particular category of fine jewelry that is a little, okay, a lot more iconic and mythical than the rest. It is something that is said to be forever and a girl's best friend. And I am, of course, talking about diamond jewelry. When you say fine jewelry, most people's thoughts wander to diamonds. When you dream of your first piece of jewelry, perhaps you're dreaming of that diamond ring, diamond necklace, or those classic diamond earrings. In fact, diamonds have become so synonymous with fine jewelry that many people call their fine jewelry pieces their diamond jewelry, even if the stone in your new favorite sparkler might actually be a sapphire. I am no exception. I love diamonds too. The fact is, the more I work with, with diamonds, the more I appreciate them and all their qualities. A diamond is not only forever, it also sparkles through everything, It doesn't matter if your ring gets dirty, the diamond will still sparkle like the eyes of children on Christmas morning, unlike other light stones in your jeweler box, like topaz, rock crystals or morganites that have to be cleaned and maintained quite frequently in order to sparkle. It is also extremely durable. I am never really worried that my diamonds will get worn, scratched, get discolored or chip, no matter what adventures I take them on, be it riding a quad bike in the Moroccan desert, swimming and diving off cliffs in Mallorca. Okay, maybe not that, because you should not wear your rings at least when you dive in the sea. But anyway... And that is because your rings might get smaller from the cold and slipperiness in the water. Anyway, I am also not worried if I perhaps just replant my tomatoes on my balcony with my diamond jewelry on, even though I know that I should be taking them off before gardening. But as an added bonus, it isn't called a girl's best friend for nothing. Diamonds also goes in all kinds of jewelry. You can cut diamonds into all sizes, from teeny tiny to skating rink. And there are very few cuts that doesn't look good on a diamond. For example, let's compare it to a morganite. A morganite cannot be cut very small, so you can't choose it as an accent stone in a ring. 
The morganite will almost always have to play the leading role. But diamonds, on the other hand, can be cut in really small sizes so that you can sprinkle them everywhere to really amp up the bling and sparkle factor. The diamond can play the supporting role. And you can put a beautiful morganite in the spotlight and then decorate with a diamond halo or have diamonds along the band if it's a ring to really enhance the light pink color of the morganite. That is why the diamond is such a versatile gemstone and for a jewelry designer or anyone that would like to mix and match gemstones in a unique and sparkling piece of jewelry for that matter, it is very hard not to love a diamond. But then there are some tricky aspects to diamonds. You may, for example, have heard of conflict diamonds, thanks to, or perhaps because of, the movie Blood Diamond. And it actually does happen that when clients come to our showroom, they do ask about conflict diamonds, even though strict measures preventing the trade of them was put in place over 20 years ago. And then there is the fact that a diamond is considered a status symbol and a luxury product, so it attracts the attention of shady people trying to make a quick buck. So you shouldn't buy diamonds off the street, kind of like you probably shouldn't buy a designer bag out of the back of a truck when you're on vacation in Southeast Asia. And all of this I thought I would talk about today. We will sort out what a conflict diamond actually is, if it's something you have to worry about today, and then we will hopefully, in a simple and understandable way, explain and go through a lot of the terminology you're coming across in conjunction to diamonds, like the four C's, GIA, diamond certificate, and if there is any difference between the color grades Vesselton and Top Vesselton. That is why I have chosen to name this episode The Diamond Episode and hope that it is one of those episodes you will return to over and over again. Because when you have absorbed all the knowledge in this episode, spoiler alert, it is an intense one, you will hopefully really enjoy listening to upcoming Diamond episodes and other podcast episodes. Almost all of them touch on diamonds in some way. Because when you have learned the rules of a perfect diamond, you can throw out the rule book and find the best diamond for you. I, like many of you listeners, are actually on the hunt for my own perfectly imperfect diamond to add to my collection. So let's get this show on the road. This is the diamond episode. We might as well start with the burning topic of blood diamonds, because it actually has a happy ending. If you are researching diamonds, you will come across the term blood diamonds, also known as red diamonds or conflict diamonds. And it refers to diamonds mined in a war zone and sold to finance these wars and conflicts, hence the name. The term is also used to highlight the negative consequences of the diamond trade in certain areas. 
or to label an individual diamond as having come from such an area, more specifically some 30 years ago. Then the term became household, largely thanks to the movies and series that were made on the subject, for example, Blood Diamond with Leonardo DiCaprio. But even during the time that this was an issue, less than 2% of all diamonds that were traded on the world market could be traced back to these wars and conflicts. But there is a silver lining to the story. The African diamond industry joined forces and a bunch of countries created a governing body to certify that the raw diamonds that were mined did not come from zones of conflict. And the buyers of diamonds could be assured that their diamonds have not contributed to violence. And this process was named the Kimberley process, after the famous South African Kimberley mine, which is now closed. And the Kimberley process was actually supported by the UN. In 2001, diamond industry figures convened and formed the new organization, the World Diamond Council, which now has 82 member countries. This new body set out to draft a new process whereby all rough diamonds could be certified as coming from a non-conflict source. On their website, they guarantee that 99.8% of all the diamonds in the world are non-conflict. But as they state themselves, even a single conflict diamond is one too many, and so their work continues. And for us working with diamonds... It is sort of a guarantee and an industry standard that everybody maintains. So I would say that today it is actually very difficult finding diamonds that aren't certified and conflict-free according to the Kimberley process. So the Kimberley process has made the business of diamonds safer both for vendors and for consumers like you. As all industry standards and reforms the Kimberley process has received its fair share of criticism. For example, concerns have been raised about the controls not being rigorous enough. But today, I would say that the ethical and moral issues prevalent in the diamond industry are the same as in any other industry that has the majority of its production in developing countries like the clothes or food industry, where it is more about sustainability and fair employment conditions rather than war and conflict. And that is why Johannes, the gemstone expert we work with at Mumbai, travels to all the mines he buys gemstone from because he wants to get to know the conditions and the people and the families who work there. I want to compare it to the solid relationship we have to our goldsmiths and the studios we work with here in Sweden. So we know that we share the same values. I think it's like everything else. All trade in raw materials and goods, be it diamonds or cars. The price that we pay as a consumer goes to the people further back in the supply chain, the people who made the final product and the financial ecosystem in which they operate. So as a consumer, you have a lot of power 
And I think it is our responsibility to invest in companies and buy products where you feel you can stand behind the entire chain of production. And I think it is important in everything you do, even when you choose from which restaurant to order your Friday night takeout. And then I will also want to mention the slightly ironic or tragic in all of this. The industry or niche of the industry that got to play the role of the white knight in all of this, the synthetic lab-grown diamond companies, are the ones who have been the root of most recent scandals and controversies. As in, the scandal is not that you have accidentally bought a conflict diamond, but rather that a jeweler has bought a bunch of smaller diamonds to use, for example, a tennis bracelet. If you don't know what a tennis bracelet is, Google it for massive sparkle. And have then proceeded to examine the individual diamonds in a lab and realize that all of the gems that were sold as natural were actually synthetic. And that is actually one of the more urgent concerns that we face in the industry right now. But we are finding more and more methods to separate natural and synthetic diamonds. So hopefully it won't be that big of a problem in the future. But as we all know, there are two sides to the same coin. And now that you are learning about diamonds, of course, I am hoping that these episodes will inspire coming dinner table discussions with your friends and families. I think you should know about all aspects of this industry and how the land lies today. As I said before in the podcast, there is nothing more valuable than knowledge, not even diamonds. And the more information and knowledge that reaches the surface, the more we can control what happens in the future. Because diamonds are a truly magical material and we want to be able to enjoy them for generations to come and use them in jewelry with a clear conscience. I call gemstones the solid flowers of nature and I guess you can say that the diamond is like the geranium or strawberry of your garden. No jewelry collection is complete without diamonds. The diamond is the most versatile gemstone that can endure almost anything. Kind of like how even if you go away on a holiday for a few weeks, your geraniums will survive. It will even have grown, living its best life while you were gone. And just as a side note for the gardening novice, the geranium was originally a desert plant and thus does very well without water. And as a fun fact... It actually comes from South Africa, a country known for its many diamond mines. So geraniums and diamonds have more in common than you might think. But how do you know which diamond to buy? It kind of feels like your next diamond ring is only a Google search away. But can you just find the cheapest conflict-free diamond and simply add to cart? Well, if you are listening to this podcast... I wouldn't recommend it. I think you should learn about different diamond qualities, how to weigh the pros and cons of different stones so that you will find the perfect diamond for you. And we will talk about the different qualities of a diamond 
or should we say facets right now? So when it comes to white diamonds, which is the one single stone we should all have in our jewelry collection, there is actually a method to ensure that you buy exactly the diamond you want and that you can afford. And it is based on a very simple system that is recognized worldwide as the four C's. If you learn about these four C's, picking the right diamond when comparing stones that initially look identical will be as easy as one, two, three. I am quite sure that most people have actually heard of the four C's. Am I right? Just as I am equally sure that most people don't really understand the significance of them. But I do think it is important that you, who listen to the Jeweler podcast, do have a general understanding of them, because it will help you judge the quality of the different gemstones you come across in your life, not just diamonds. The four C's denote four different quality aspects of a diamond and determine the price of a specific stone. It also explains why there are such massive differences in prices between stones of the same size. I usually say that there are seven factors that determine how desirable a gemstone is, i.e. determining its price. It is the color, the size, which is carrot, clarity, the cut, the hardness, the durability, and rarity, how scarce it is. And if you are comparing different stones, like comparing a topaz and a diamond, then it is the last three factors, hardness, durability, and rarity, that explains the massive price difference between the two. Diamonds are both harder and a lot more durable than the topaz, which is why it will almost always be a lot more expensive than the topaz. It doesn't matter how well cut the topaz is, carrot is higher, the diamond will still be more expensive. But if you have two seemingly identical stones in front of you, say two white diamonds, how do you choose between them? And how do you know which one is more valuable? Well... Then you have to look at the first four factors, color, carrot, clarity, and cut, the four C's. So what you do is simply compare the two diamonds and look at which one is bigger, because that one should be the most expensive. Which one has the best color? Are both bright white or are there hints of yellow or brown in one of them? The whitest one should be more expensive. How do the stones look upon closer inspections? Can you see some internal inclusions, tiny crack or discolored spots on the surface? The clearest stone should have a higher price tag. So what you do is simply compare the two diamonds and look at which one is bigger because that one should be the most expensive. Which one has the best color? Are both bright white or are there hints of yellow or brown in one of them? The whitest one should be more expensive. How do the stones look upon closer inspections? 
Can you see some internal inclusions, tiny cracks or discolored spots on the surface? The clearest stones should have a higher price tag. And finally, there is cut. Which stone's beauty is enhanced the most from its cut? For example, which stone reflects more light or has a more intense sparkle? Well, that would be the more expensive one. In the end, you have to decide which factors you find are important to you. We all, well, most of us, have to make compromises and trade-offs. It is very rare that you find a perfect stone, so then you have to decide what you prioritize. Do you want as large of a stone as possible, that possibly have as few inclusions and that isn't totally white? And this is actually how you have compared gemstones to each other and determined their value for centuries. There have been a few names for the different qualities. For example, in the 19th century, you gave diamonds different letters like A, B and C to indicate quality. Or letter combinations like triple A, double A and single A. But the problem was that there was no common scale. Different countries all used different systems. And there was no common quality standard, which made it difficult to pursue international trade. After many years, it was actually a jeweler who took matters into his own hands when he felt that the world needed a global standard and created an organization which was named Gemological Institute of America, GIA. The year was 1931 and the jeweler's name was Robert M. Shipley. He also stated the organization's mission. GIA's mission is to ensure the public trust in gems and jewelry by upholding the highest standard of integrity, academics, science and professionalism through education, research, laboratory services and instrument development. He simply wanted to create a common scientific foundation for the jewelry industry and make it as professional and legitimate as other industries during this time. And his main tool came to be education. Kind of like what we're doing with a jewelry podcast, just on a smaller scale, right? And it was also during this time that using the four C's to compare the quality of diamonds became commonplace. Even Shipley used this method. And GIA was the first organization to create a formal grading system using these four C's, the four C's of diamonds. The system was launched in 1953, and although the knowledge wasn't new, the way GIA packaged it and created a common vernacular was. For example, they graded color on a scale from D all the way down to Z. The thought behind this standardization process was to make it easier to trade diamonds internationally. The system created by GIA almost 70 years ago, the four seats of diamond quality, is to this day the standard that is used and recognized to determine the quality of a diamond all over the world.
And this has had two major consequences. Firstly, it meant that the quality of diamonds from that point on could be communicated in one universal way. Secondly, it meant that the customers now knew how to think when comparing different options and buying diamonds because now there was a common standard. And for those of you who remember episode 3, where we talked about how De Beers popularized the diamond solitaire as a symbol of love and the ultimate engagement ring around the same time, can probably imagine that the GIA worked with, amongst others, De Beers to spread the word about the Four Seas and this new diamond lingo. De Beers even used the grading system in their marketing campaigns, and it further perpetuated the message and gave the standard even wider recognition. So with this, the perfect storm of knowledge combined with clever marketing in mind, it perhaps isn't that hard to understand how diamonds have gained their iconic status. Not only are they beautiful and valuable, people can also understand why. To this day, GIA is a global authority in the gemstone and fine jewelry industry, and many consider it to be the most reliable source for an unbiased valuation of diamonds. A diamond is sent to GIA's lab when it is cut and ready to get its certificate before it's sold, for example to jewelers like Mumbai. But you can also send in your own diamonds to GIA and get an appraisal from them. But then it has to be removed from the piece of jewelry it is set in first, if it is not just a loose stone, that is. And then GIA will have a look at your stone and estimate the quality by looking at the four C's. Carrot, cut, color and clarity. But they won't assign a value to it and say, this stone is worth $2,000. Instead, you will get a report, a GIA certificate, describing the diamond, how well it measured in the different categories, for example, SI1 in clarity and F in color. So your GIA certificate will give you a thorough description of your diamond's color, clarity, cut and exact carat weight, but not a price. They certify, but they do not assign value. The market, supply and demand determines the price. Well, now then, how do we turn all this new knowledge into an advantage? How do the four C's affect your hunt for the perfect diamond? And how do you decipher the diamond certificate? Let's dive into the four C's. We start with carrot. Carrot is perhaps the most famous diamond factor. I mean, size does matter, does it not? And the one most people have heard of, but few actually know what it means. Carrot, spelt with a C, is a weight, where one carrot equals 0.2 grams, or one-fifth of a gram, meaning that a five-carat diamond weighs exactly one gram, which is sort of mind-blowing. I would say the most common carrot size sold for engagement rings in Sweden is 0.3 to 0.5 carat, 
But if any other jeweler out there has a different experience, please do share. In the US, this would be considered small. I guess we are more modest and subtle. There you want at least one carat in your engagement ring, minimum. Ideally more, think skating rink. And just to give you a reference, a brilliant cut round diamond of 1.5 carat has a diameter of approximately 5 millimeter. A 1 carat brilliant cut is around 6.5 millimeter in diameter. And a 2 carat is 8 millimeter. And so on. But then you might also realize that depending on which shape you have cut the diamond, the round brilliant cut, the square princess cut, or the rectangular emerald cut, you can create an illusion that makes a stone appear larger or smaller. For example, because a round brilliant diamond doesn't have corners, it will weigh less than a square princess cut with the same diameter. And yes, this is not only a lesson in gemstones, it is also a lesson in geometry. Hence, Citeris Paribus, all other things equal. Yes, this is now also a Latin lesson. The princess cut diamond will be more expensive because it is the weight, the carat, not the diameter, that determines the price. This perhaps also explains why the brilliant cut has become so immensely popular. A lot of bang for your buck. Then I will give you a little bonus tip. There is actually a thing that you call magic sizes. So at some threshold levels, the price increases dramatically. For example, an 0.50 carat diamond, that is exactly half a carat, is a lot more expensive than an 0.49 carat diamond because you have crossed the magic 0.5 carat threshold. It's the same thing with one carat. Many people who have a one carat ring actually have a diamond that is 0.96 or 0.98 carat because they are significantly cheaper than a ring that is exactly one carat or just above, say, 1.02. And all of this, the exact carat weight, is of course specified in the certificate. But choosing a magic size means a lot of value for money, because the demand for the stones just above these thresholds are higher. The person buying the ring may not know their forces and says they want a 1 carat diamond because it sounds better than an 0.98 carat diamond and diamond merchants are aware of this psychology and set the prices higher for those stones. But in reality, no one can tell the difference between an 0.98 or a 1 carat just by looking at them. So it might be worth it going down a fraction to get a diamond with, say, a perfect cut or perfect clarity, depending on what you value. A diamond that would have been way more expensive if it was above one carat. Another thing you should know is that prices aren't linear, but progressive. Meaning that it is a lot cheaper to buy 100 0.01 carat diamonds than one single one carat diamond. Even though in both cases 
you will get a total weight of one carat of diamonds. This is simply because it is rarer that you find a big chunk of raw diamond that is gemstone quality and that you can cut into one single clear diamond than it is finding a block with some impurities which you can cut into many smaller diamonds. So if you want a carat of diamonds at a cheaper price, you can cheat by, for example, choosing a ring that has five 0.20 carat diamonds, like our angel ring. You can Google if you want, because the total carat weight of a piece of jewelry is counted as the sum of all the stones in it. And before we leave the topic of carrots, some bonus trivia. The word carrot comes from the carob tree, which is a plant similar to cocoa. You may have seen carob powder sold in health stores. It looks like pale cocoa and is said to have a refreshing effect. So why then did they choose to name the size unit of diamonds after a sort of cocoa tree? Well, back before electrical scales and GIA certificates, diamond merchants used carob seeds to weigh and measure the size of diamonds. A diamond weighing exactly the same as one carob seed was said to be one carat. And as it turns out, Most carob seeds weigh around 0.2 grams, one-fifth of a gram. And that is why one carat today is equal to 0.2 gram. Oh, and a final bonus fact. Carat with C is not to be confused with carat with a K. That measures gold purity, or should we say gold ratio, in, for example, 24K or 18K gold. That is something completely different, and you can hear all about it in episode four of the Jeweler podcast at the very end of the episode when I answer a listener's question. Okay, let's see about that next C, color. Then there is color, or actually the thing you refer to is actually a lack of color. A chemically perfect diamond is colorless, like a drop of water. And such a diamond is given the color grade D. In the world of diamonds, getting a D in your GIA certificate is equivalent to an A plus in your school report card. It is the white color that is considered the prettiest and most valuable. After that, diamonds are graded from E all the way down to Z, which is considered the least valuable color with a noticeable yellow or brown tint. And then we are not talking about the fabulous champagne or chocolate diamonds, but a slightly discolored diamond, a diamond that should be white but isn't. After that, there is a color that is so far beyond white that it passes Z in the alphabet. Then it switches and is instead called a fancy color diamond. And all of a sudden, the presence of color is now desirable preferably as intensely as possible, and the prices go up again. And in the certificate, instead of a letter on the color line, it will say something like fancy vivid yellow or fancy vivid pink. Vivid is the highest color gate, given to the most intense and saturated stones, and is in this case the most desirable. 
As a diamond merchant, it is always a gamble when you buy a bunch of uncertified stones and have them sent to GIA because you are hoping that some of them pass the discolored stage, so to speak, and get graded as fancy. It might also be interesting to know why the lack of color scale goes from D to Z, right? Well, before GIA created their system, there were a bunch of other methods to describe color or the degree of discoloration of diamonds, like, for example, A, B, C, or Roman numerals like 1, 2, and 3, etc. But the founders of GIA wanted to start with a clean slate and as such started with the letter D. D for diamonds. I don't know. What do you think? There are still some people out there using the old grading systems, but most follow GIA's letter system from D to Z. And I thought I'd quickly go through the different grades. So D, E, F are considered colorless and are the most expensive. G to J are almost colorless. K, L and M are called faint color. N to R are said to have a very light color and have a visible non-white hue. And finally, S to Z are what GIA considers light color, a noticeable yellow or brown hue. Many of these differences in color are so subtle that they go unnoticed to an untrained eye, but can create a massive difference in diamond quality and price. After Z, the scale ends, and diamonds with more color are considered fancy. Really rare fancy diamonds in spectacular colors can be stupidly expensive just because they are very rare and each color is unique. But I will also say this, most fancy diamonds you find on the market are discolored diamonds that have been treated to become, for example, pink, blue or green. So you know that. If you have been looking at diamonds online, by the way, you may have also noticed or come across other color terms than the letters, like river, top vesselton, and vesselton. In Sweden, that is actually the most commonly used terminology and what we use at Mumbai, mainly to make it easier for our customers, of course. A river equals D and E, that is the most desirable, perfect colorless stones. And top vesselton, TW, is F and G, and vesselton is H. And these are followed by the descriptions top crystal, crystal, top cape and cape in decreasing level of quality, matching the letters from I all the way down to Z. And the most common color sold, or at least from our experience, is the top vesselton, corresponding to letters F and G. But why is that? Well, because it is almost impossible to see that it isn't a river unless you actually place it next to one. And even then, you wouldn't be able to see it with a naked eye. But the difference in price between a river and a top vesselton is quite substantial which makes Top Vesselton very popular because you get a lot of diamond for your dollar. Using letters to describe diamonds 
actually make sense. But where do the other names come from? The names are old and came about in a time where the quality grades were more reflective of how a diamond actually looked. So the names river or water are used because perfectly colorless and clear stones look like water. But the story also goes that the names were chosen because the stones were found in rivers or the stones were given names based on in which geographical area they were found. There is a mine called Vesselton where a particular kind of diamonds were found, hence the terms Vesselton and Top Vesselton. The name Cape was given to light yellow diamonds that were found in a mine close to Cape Town in South Africa. Then there were also a description called Jagger, given to colorless diamonds with a strong fluorescence that were found in a particular mine in South Africa. And during the color assessment process, gemologists consider fluorescence as well. That is, if the diamonds emits visible light under ultraviolet light, like strong sunlight. And the fluorescence factor is graded from weak to very strong, and many want as little of it as possible, while others do not care at all. And the third C is clarity. And it refers to how flawed, or ideally how flawless, the crystal is. That is, if it has any inclusions. And in the same manner as with color, the grade given to a diamond is based on the absence of inclusions. Each diamond is given a clarity grade based on the number of inclusions and how visible they are, and also where in the crystal they are. And know this, no diamond is perfectly clear. But to understand why they are not, we need to have a quick geology lesson about how diamonds are formed. Natural diamonds are what happens to coal when it has been subjected to an immense amount of pressure for millions of years deep down in the Earth's crust. And this process can result in a whole range of internal flaws. In jewelry industry lingo, we call them inclusions and external flaws called blemishes. To evaluate the clarity of a diamond means taking a close look at the number, size and position of its inclusions and assess how they affect the overall look of the finished stone. Just like the color grading scale, GIA's clarity grading system was developed because different jewelers use different terminology, like loop clean and piquet, and there was no cohesive scale. But today... No matter where you buy diamond, chances are that the jeweler or retailer will use GIA's terminology because it is internationally recognized and the English terminology is used in all countries. So onto the scale. GIA's clarity scale has six main categories or grades, all subject to 10 times magnification. So this is nothing that you would be able to grade yourself with the naked eye. So first we have flawless. That is the finest one. No visible inclusions or spots. Then we have internally flawless. IF. No visible internal inclusions, but some spots on the surface. Then we have 
very, very slightly included, called VVS 1 and 2. And these are inclusions so small, it is hard even for an experienced appraiser to spot them. Then we have very slightly included, VS, and it is also divided up in 1 and 2. Inclusions that with some effort can be seen by an appraiser, but they are considered small. And slightly included means there are visible inclusions, but still only with 10 times magnification. And then the last scale. So it's included. And these have three divisions. So included one, I1, included two, I2, and included three, I3. And here you have visible inclusions that can be seen by the naked eye and that can affect the overall appearance of the diamond, like transparency and brilliance. Like you may have understood, many inclusions are too small to be visible to be seen by anyone else than a trained professional. To the naked eye, a VS1 and an SI2, very small inclusions 1 and slightly included 2, look exactly the same. But the two are considered to be of very different overall quality. And this might also help you understand why many jewelry nerds and collectors might choose to lower their standards when it comes to clarity, because it can't be seen with the naked eye anyways. And clarity is also affected by the cut. I know that may sound strange, but bear with me. In a cut with many facets, like a brilliant pier or radiant, It is harder to see inclusions than a cut with fewer facets, like an emerald cut, which is very smooth and minimalist and shows all internal flaws because you can see through the entire diamond. So to sum it up, the fewer inclusions and spots, the higher the clarity. And that was quite a nice segue to our last and final C, cut. Diamonds are known for their ability to reflect light and intense sparkle. We often think about a diamond cut as a shape, say round, princess, pier, marquise, etc. But what a diamond cut actually means in this context is how well a diamond's facets disperse light. That is what the appraiser looks at when they give the diamond cut grade. They also look at the proportions. For example, the diameter in relation to the depth so that the person who cut the stone didn't take any shortcuts and, for example, cut a very shallow diamond with a large table, the topmost facet, and diameter. Out of all the four C's, one typically says that the cut is the most complex and the most technically difficult to analyze, and this is also the only C that corresponds with human interaction, so it puts a lot of pressure on the cutter. And GIA grades round brilliant cut diamonds, the most common cut shape, in five different categories. Excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor. So the cut will affect the sparkle and light dispersion of a diamond. And that is why many jewelry professionals rate cut as the most important C, because they consider it to be the single most important factor in how beautiful a diamond is.
And those are the world-famous forces of diamonds. Most people learn the basics when they go out diamond shopping for the first time, perhaps looking for an engagement ring. Although, you know, I believe that you do not need an engagement to get yourself some diamonds and then forget about them rather quickly. And that's not to say that you need to remember everything I've said in this episode, but if you do remember some of it, you will have a good foundation of knowledge to help guide you the next time you go shopping for a diamond, or any other gemstone for that matter. So now that you have a basic grasp of the four C's, I think you should use what you learn to compare different types of stones to each other. Like, If you are standing in a jewelry store and are choosing between, for example, two different sapphires, sure, they probably will not have certificates, but you can assess stones based on the four C's to see which one you like best, which color is the prettiest, which stone is bigger, how is the clarity, does one stone have more inclusions than the other? Which one has the best cut and sparkles more? Use your newfound knowledge to compare two similar stones of the same kind to each other. Be it diamonds, morganites, sapphires, tourmalines, you name it. A larger stone, i.e. higher carat, will generally be more expensive. The same goes for a clearer stone with less inclusions and so on. And now we are really getting somewhere. It's unlikely that you will ever find a perfect stone with color D, large as a skating rink, that is flawless without any inclusions, in a perfect cut so it sparkles like the eyes of children on Christmas morning. Or if you do, it will not be cheap. So you will have to compromise and make some sacrifices. So here are my tips. You know, I love to give them. Look at as many different diamonds as possible. Ultimately, you will start to understand what you like and what you find important. Just like with jewelry and other gemstones. Generally, all cuts, and now we are talking about shapes, are equally expensive if they are the same carat size. But some cuts can be perceived as giving more value for money because they look larger. If your goal is to have a stone that looks as large as possible to the eye, then I recommend picking a round stone. Carrot is a weight, so you maximize the diameter for a given carrot because a round stone doesn't have corners that weighs a lot. A round One carat brilliant cut diamond is 6.5 millimeter in diameter, whilst the one carat princess cut, a squared cut, is only about 5.5 millimeter in diameter. So because brilliants look bigger, it may feel that they are more value for money. Similarly, if you want an elongated shape, a marquise or pear shape of one carat will be longer than a one-carat emerald cut because the emerald has corner. A pear shape is shaped like a water drop and a marquise cut is sort of shaped like a boat or or an eye. So you can see why they look more value for the money. 
than the emerald cut. And on a different note, I adore both marquise and emerald cuts. They are really beautiful and have a wonderful vintage vibe. By the way, do you think we should do an episode on different cuts? Drop us a DM on Instagram, Jeweler Podcast. My second tip, dare to look beyond the GIA certificate. The more knowledge you have, for example, when you have understood how they make their assessment after listening to this episode, you can go your own way and look at vintage cuts that don't fit the GIA format and would get a very poor rating. Vintage stones are often asymmetrical and not in proportion, which is what makes them beautiful, I think. But the 4Cs format was based on round, modern, brilliant cuts, which should have a particular symmetry. The same goes for color. A vintage stone will probably have some hint of color, like a yellow tint, that would render a poor color rating on the GIA scale. And that is the reason why vintage diamonds aren't certified. They don't fit into the 4C format. For vintage diamonds, you would need a 5C, charm. But alas, no. And also, that is very subjective. And perhaps it is the 5C, the charm, or the subjectivity that those who know the most about diamonds and know the forces in and out, and really understand the grading, when they buy diamonds for themselves, they look for ungraded, old, vintage diamonds with old cuts. An antique diamond is one that is at least 100 years old, or sometimes antique is used for gems that are 80 years old from the 40s, 1940s and earlier. But the more you know about the four Cs, the more you can think outside the jewelry box and look for those lovely old charming stones. But if you do go shopping for a vintage stone, I recommend that you get help from a professional to ensure that the stone is ethical, so not a conflict diamond, and that you pay a fair price. And finally, a few words of advice. There is no such thing as a free lunch. If something seems too good to be true... It probably is. And someone else would have paid the price if you don't. So if you find a diamond that seems underpriced, think about why that could be. And finally, do you get certificates with all diamonds? Well, GIA certificates typically come with stones that are larger than 0.3 carat. If they are smaller than that, people usually think they are not valuable enough to have certified. But you can hand in smaller stones to GIA if you want to. Then all labs do not use GIA system, but all base their assessment on similar grounds. And you don't have to have your diamond assessed by GIA or any other institution either for that matter. But if you do, you get a certificate which is good if you want to sell it on the second-hand market because a lot of people trust, for example, GIA. But any jeweler can appraise stone according to the four Cs, which is great if you have an old stone at home. And when I say jeweler, I here mean gemologists. But they won't give you a certificate, 
but rather a valuation and a written note stating the different criteria of your stone. And with those words, I hope that this behemoth of an episode got you inspired <laughs> to learn more about this fascinating world and that you are ready to go out and search for your perfect diamond. The more you see and learn, the easier it will be for you to know when you have found your perfect diamond and pull the trigger. If you have the possibility to do so, I think you should see a diamond lie before you purchase it or trust that those who chose the diamond for you have done a really good job. At Mumbai, we spent a lot and I mean a lot of time sourcing our gemstones, but it is a fun job. And if you want to see loads of lovely gemstones live, you are welcome to come visit our Stockholm showroom. Just remember to book an appointment or just go to your local gemstone loving jeweler. And if this episode sparked any thoughts or questions, send us a DM to Jewelry Podcast on Instagram and tell us how you find your favorite di diamond maybe. I wish you to have a lovely day and don't forget, you deserve fine jewelry. Thank you.